Okay, we are, I just want to say this, we're continuing our study of the gospel according to John, and I don't know if you realize it or not, but there's a very big chunk of this gospel that is dedicated to the Passion Week. We've been in the Passion Week now for months, and we're going to continue to uh, be in the Passion Week now for uh, some further time, but uh, you know, all the stuff that we've been studying uh, since the upper room has taken place during that since the upper room discourse started, it's been taking place that last week before uh, the crucifixion and death of Christ and then the resurrection to come. So uh, I don't know how much you've even thought about this, but there's a huge part of the Gospel of John that is dedicated to this particular week. And so what I've been trying to plan out all along is how to get through all of these texts in a manner that we will fall exactly on the Easter story in the Gospel of John on Easter Sunday. And lo and behold, I sat down the other day and it looks like it's going to work out almost perfectly. (laughs) So hallelujah for that. Uh, Okay, but we are in chapter 18 beginning with verse 1 and going, and we're going to read through. Ah! Hey, babe, can you get my little book out of my office that's got my sermon notes in it? (laughs) Sorry. We'll read in our absence. I mean, I could do it without it, but I might linger too much. Uh, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, thank you very much, my dear. You're a godsend. Uh, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, he drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Remember back when we were studying through the Upper Room Discourse, which we just recently finished. And remember when Jesus was washing the disciples' feet. And while he was doing that, Jesus had said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. He even identified the culprit. He said, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And he gave it to Judas. 
And we read then that after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. That is, Judas left. And it was night. Now, Jesus and the other guys have left the upper room also. And they've crossed the brook Kidron. And they've entered into the Garden of Gethsemane. By this point... You know, we have some details from the gospel according to Matthew and some of the other gospels that are not shared with us here in John. And one of the things is that Jesus had gone forth and taken three of the guys with him a little further. And then he even went on beyond there by himself where he prayed those fervent prayers three times. Uh, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That's all taking place at this point, obviously. So Judas now returns with a group, with a group. He's not alone. Uh, He is accompanied by a great crowd with swords and clubs. Now, we don't know exactly how many people came in the entourage to arrest Jesus. But it could have been a very sizable number. As a matter of fact, there's reason from Scripture to understand that it was a whole bunch of people. Very often you'll see pictures of this and places and things like that, and there will be, be a few soldier types and whatever Uh, But it's quite possible that there were as many as 1,000 Roman soldiers that came in this entourage. Not just this little band of a few that sometimes we have the idea of. You wonder why they might send so many. And, And that is because they understood that Jesus was just not any ordinary person. They understood that he was a miracle worker. People understood that. That he had powers that other people didn't have. Not only that, even though he was very unpopular amongst the leadership, he was extremely popular amongst a lot of the lesser folk. And I would imagine one of the thoughts in all of this is they were afraid that there was going to be an insurrection when they raised, uh, when they arrested Jesus. And so they sent a great horde of soldiers to kind of quell that desire in the hearts of the people. Not only that, uh, just as it would be in our day, if, if there was someone going around the land that was doing all these miraculous healings and doing other things like that, do you think people would hear about it? Do you think that people would want to come and see what was going on? These men were in fear. I would imagine that Jesus might turn his powers against them. Jesus came to a place that was very well known by Judas. He had been there a number of times with Jesus. He knew where to find him. 
Jesus wasn't hiding from anyone. They came with lanterns and torches and weapons. In other words, they were very well prepared to be resisted. The only outburst was when Peter took his sword and he cut off the ear of the servant, which Jesus ostracized him for and immediately healed this ear. The Bible is full of stories of betrayal that go all the way back almost to the very beginning. Betrayal is a very big part of the Bible story. Betrayal is a very big part of human history. And we all understand as believers that it all started in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve betrayed, disobeyed the willing revealed or, or the revealed will of God. See, the heart of sin is betrayal. Every sin is betrayal of God. And you see it reflected even outside the Bible, but also in human history. Some very famous betrayals outside the betrayal of Jesus. If you think about Julius Caesar, who was betrayed by Marcus Brutus and slain. We've all heard of Benedict Arnold, right? My whole point in this is that the betrayal is inbred in all of human history. Why? Because it is part of sin. In a sense, it's the root of sin. And I think it's very important for you and I to understand that sin is many things, but one of those is an absolute betrayal of God. And what I'm telling you is this, is there is a heart of Judas beating in every one of us even yet. That every time we sin, in particularly when we do it and we know we're doing it, it is an act of betrayal against God. Wherever there's sin, there's betrayal. Wherever there's a betrayal, there's sin. The two things are bedfellows. It would be hard, and I, I don't imagine anybody could do it, to come up with any kind of an injustice, any, any act that was so unjust as this particular one in the arrest and everything that takes place with Jesus. So it, it's a measure of the utter sin, sinfulness of people. Peter himself will shortly deny Jesus. 
who said before that he would never do that. Three times he will deny any association with Christ. They will all scatter after the arrest. From the Gospel of Luke, we read these words. Jesus had said this to Peter just shortly before all of this took place. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. One of the most important points I want to make this morning is this is that we all have a little of the heart of Jesus or of Judas beating within us. I mean, it's easy for us to sit at a great distance from, you know, history through history and all of that and, and wonder how in the world Judas could have done what he did. You know, he was so close to Jesus and you know and and, and all of that. But I mean, what happens with Peter is a good example of <laughs> You know, it's easy to have one idea that we would never desert you. We would never forsake you and that sort of thing. But when things actually come, you do it. And that's because sin. Because we all have the hearts of sinners. John will later write in his first epistle. They went out from us because they were not really of us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. What he's talking about there is people who have come into the church and now they've left. And you can imagine that maybe people in the congregation, because numbers are really important, you know, the bigger the church, the more important you feel, and, you know, that sort of thing. The people were very concerned that people were leaving their church. John made it very clear that there are people who will come. And they will leave. They may go to another church, and that's okay. But they may leave it all together. And what John is saying there is it's God's way of gleaning, of removing those people from the body who really are not part of the body. Let me just say, we've seen a little bit of this here over the years. Not much, not much and hardly worth even talking about. Where we've had people leave here and in essence have left the church completely.
People leave churches. People leave the fold. And when they do that, what it tells you is they really were not of the fold to begin with. And that's a good thing. The hope is this, is maybe going back out into the world and now they've got some knowledge and understanding in their head at least, maybe not in their heart, but it's in their head at least, that going back out into the world, it might turn them and drive them back to the cross of Jesus. The truth is we all have a bit of Judas lurking in the dark shadows of our own hearts. I tell you what makes, some things make me cringe and one of those is this, is when I hear some people say, I could never do that. It's not possible that I would ever do this, that, or the other. I cringe when I hear those words. Because it could very well be that God will let loose the reins and let them see just what they really and truly are capable of yet doing. We've talked a lot about this more in recent weeks, you know, and, and like we said this morning, that every sin is an act of betrayal. Every sin is an act of betrayal. That every time we sin, we in essence are betraying Christ. And we've mentioned this a few times in more recent months and that is this there's a sense you know very often we want to belittle the sins of believers and and really blow up the sins of unbelievers but there's a sense because we are in the know and we have an understanding of God and his ways and, and that sort of thing that when we sin we should consider it to actually be worse than when an unbeliever sins especially when we do it knowingly I mean, how many times in your life as a believer, you have you done something and you hear this little voice in the back of your head saying, you shouldn't be doing that, you shouldn't be saying that. But you do it anyway. The truth is this, is there is a bit of the heart of Judas that still remains in all of us. There's a sense in which every sin is an act of betrayal. Every sin is an act, an utter act of utter betrayal to God. I'll remind us this morning that our sins grieve God's heart more, not less, more than those of everybody else. And I want to challenge us with the idea this morning that even though sin remains a part of our picture, it ought to be a fading away part. Slowly, maybe just, maybe very slowly, 
but disappearing. As long as we're in this world, we're going to have to deal with sin. I, I don't know about you, but I'm sick and tired. I'm tired of dealing with your sin. But you know whose sin I'm, worse, I, I'm most tired of dealing with? My own. I was t- sharing with Lori the other day. I was doing some work somewhere and something went wrong and some stuff came out of my mouth that I didn't even know was still in there. I hate it. I hate it. When sin gets the best of me, which is a lot more often than most people would think. So what is God's solution to all of this? Does he just push us out there on the limb and leave us there lingering? all is sinned and fallen short of God's glory therefore we have all betrayed God and as we sin we continue to betray God so what is God's remedy for it G R A C E grace You are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Grace. God's answer to our sin, grace. Only God could come up with something like that. But he did. The truth is that Jesus needed grace. I mean, Judas needed grace, not Jesus. (laughs) Judas needed grace. But he didn't get it. I mean, after all, somebody had to do what Judas did. There had to be a Judas. But I just want to remind us this morning, the only thing God did there was he let loose the reins a little bit. He let let sin get the better of Judas. The thing you just didn't understand was he needed Jesus far more, desperately more, than he needed 30 pieces of silver. Now you can imagine, you get on the internet, people try to estimate how much three, you know, 30 pieces of silver would be worth today, and it's crazy because the estimates run from about $200 to $15,000. <laughs> Which in those days would have gone a long way. But we understand how money and wealth and riches have an appeal to the human heart. 
most of us have experienced to some degree the love of money and the things that money can gather for you. Well, I want to remind us too that this was not his first infraction. That Judas was the one who was entrusted with all, the, he had the money pouch. He kept all the money for Jesus and everybody. From which money was spent to buy things that they needed. But we've already been told by the, the, the Apostle John that, that Judas made a habit of taking money out of it for himself. Now, Judas ought to be a real warning to all of us not to let money take center stage in our life and the things that it can get for us. It's a necessity. But it should not be the thing that drives our motivations when it comes to just about everything. Well, if you read from the other Gospels, Gospel of Matthew, for instance, you, would, you get the idea because what happens is that there is some degree of remorse that takes place on the part of Judas after all of this takes place, and he takes the 30 pieces of silver and he tries to return them back to the priests. In an effort to absolve himself of any wrongdoing, I would imagine. So, I mean, there was some degree of guilt that took place there. And, and, the, and the thing about it is, is they refused to take the 30 pieces of silver back. So he took them and he threw them in the temple. Then he went out and hanged himself, according to Matthew. There's been an ongoing debate now for the last 2,000 years in regard to the question of whether Judas is in heaven now with Jesus or Judas is in hell. And it's partly because people see that there is this time of remorse that he has and they want to, they say that, he, that that's repentance. And maybe it is. And maybe it's not. What I'm going to tell you this morning is I don't know if Judas is in heaven. To be honest, I don't care if he's in heaven. He may very well be in heaven with Jesus, or he may be in hell right now. And no one can answer that question definitively for anybody, of, any of us. So avoid people like the plague who think they can make those judgments. We know that God's grace is greater than all our sin, and that includes the sins of Judas. That if he really repented at that point, then he is in heaven with Christ. Of course, you can understand someone being, can you imagine being grieved to the point about something you did that you would actually hang yourself I could think of a lot of better ways of doing it. 
hanging to me is like one of the worst possible ways of dying that I could think of. But if someone who is so close to Jesus can fall away, where does that leave us? Very often we think it would be so much easier if I could just see Jesus with my eyes or if I could just hear him with my ears. If I, w- I, if I knew the reality of his presence, it would make it so much easier to continue to believe. But sometimes we wonder if someone so close to Jesus can fall away, where does that leave me? See, the problem with Judas is Judas's confidence was in himself. I tell you, the people that I worry the most about are the holier than thouers. You know, if you, if you have much dealings with church people, you, you'll come across folks every now and then where they really believe that they are a rung higher on the ladder of holiness than all of the rest of us. Every now and then you'll come across someone, and basically they never come out and say it, but what, the, what they give the impression of is, is, is the best thing that everybody else could do is be as much like me as they can be. They focus on the sins of other people all the time and they don't focus much on their own sins. My fear for them is one of these days God's going to let loose the reins and let them see just what they really are capable of doing. You would be shocked at what you could do. You don't even believe it. The reason you don't is because God has a hold of you and he's restraining you by his grace. If someone was so close to Jesus, was so close to Jesus and fall away, where does that leave us? Well, we have the Word of God to help us. Paul will later write in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, when you're tempted, you're not experiencing something that other people haven't. You're not in an exclusive club all by yourself. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Confidence in him, not in me.
18.11, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? There's a sense in which they're tempting Jesus to sin at this point. The people around him who care about him. Just remember the doctrine of the economic trinity. We talked about it in depth just a few weeks ago, and that is that all three persons of God played important and essential roles in the plan of salvation. Each was bound to do his part. The Father elected those who would come to salvation to salvation. The Son lived to gain our salvation, and he died to pay the penalty for our sins. He submitted himself willfully to the will of the Father. And it's the Holy Spirit who takes what Christ has done and applies it specifically and directly to us. You know, I don't want to make too much of this this morning, but I think we don't really think sin is all that much. That it's all that bad. Especially our sins. But I want to remind us this morning that even those sins that we consider to be trivial little things amount to nothing other than cosmic rebellion against God. That when we sin, it is an act of betrayal against Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. may seem to be a really little thing to us, but it's not to them. So what is the answer? Jesus. Jesus, 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 Jesus. But don't forget grace. You are saved by grace alone. Not something you mustered up in yourself. That's the only thing that separates you from Judas Iscariot. And me too. But it does separate us. It puts us in a different place. That we cannot ever forget how we got to where we are and why we are where we are. And we know that it's all by God's do- doing. And he, it, this is where our confidence has to rest. Our salvation cannot depend on me holding on to him. Because if, if that's true, I would have left a long time ago. Our salvation 
is a result of the fact that God has a hold of us and he will not let us go. So who gets the glory? Who gets the praise? Who gets the honor? In all of it. He does.